On today's episode, I'm joined by Matt Manocherian, Vice President of Football Research at Sports Info Solutions and former scout for the Saints and Browns. A quick disclaimer, we do briefly discuss fantasy sports and sports betting, and I do work for DraftKings. This is Measurables. Matt, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. Uh, we'll start at the beginning here. When did you first get interested in sports analytics? So, uh, first of all, thank you for having me on. Uh, in terms of my interest, I've always been interested in sports and sort of analyzing sports as long as I can remember, especially football. Um, mm-hmm. So, I mean, I remember reading things like Football Outsiders, uh, Advanced Football Analysis, um, I even, you know, as a kid, I was picking up books like Steve Belichick's Football Scouting Methods. Um, so uh, really, as long as I can remember and as, and as soon as I could start grasping things, I, I was I was picking up and trying to just learn more. I never thought of it as, you know, quote unquote analytics. But, I, you know, I guess mm-hmm. kind of looking back, that's that's what it was. And did you play, you know, fantasy sports or anything like that growing up or collect baseball cards? And I know a lot of people got into stats that way. You know, like I did that stuff a little bit, but I was never like a stats guy. It was never a stats first things for me. I was mm-hmm. very much uh, a football freak just from uh, from a young age. I had things uh-huh. like I would I would have my own playbooks that I would keep and I would be trying to draw up things as I saw them being run on TV. Um, so my interest, it, it, I don't think it started on the statistical side. And I think that's common with a lot of football people because football yeah. never was a great statistical sport. Um, Mm -hmm. but, um, so all those things were around me a bit, but, um, it was kind of, it it wasn't until I saw some of this more useful kind of application of this sort of stuff. I I played football growing up. So I kind of came from the other side in terms of the, the jocks versus nerds debate, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I know you have experience, obviously you mentioned on, on the coaching side and, and you have experience as a scout and now you're you know, in a company that, that focuses on data as well. Uh, could you just like walk me through your, your path to your current role and, and all these different you know, views you've had to the game of football? Yeah. So, um, I grew up, um, playing football throughout high school, wasn't good enough to play college football, did my undergrad at Duke. But as soon as I finished up at Duke, I went back to coaching high school football back at home while I was doing day jobs and trying to figure out how I could get into into a job in football. Mm-hmm. Um, and from there, I was just kind of reaching out. I kept up a football blog that I that I wrote in my spare time uh, when I wasn't coaching or doing my day job. And eventually through, uh, you know, the power of loose ties through a friend of a friend of a friend, got an internship with the Saints and worked mm-hmm. my way from that internship into a full-time job in their uh, scouting department. And I was a scouting assistant there for a few years before um, I got a, a job as an area scout with the Browns. And then, of course, you know, as things as things tended to go in Cleveland, uh, hopefully I can put that in the past tense, um, <laughs> my, my boss, Mike Lombardi, got fired within six months of, of hiring me. And so it went in a totally different direction. It went in a direction towards Johnny Manziel, and I kind of couldn't get out of there fast enough with the way things were going. Um, and that's when and that's when it was that I found uh, a guy who's been really active in baseball analytics, Vince Gennaro, um, who at the time was the president of the Society for American Baseball Research, Sabre. 
and mm-hmm. also was running a sports management graduate program at Columbia who, who really sold me on the idea of, hey, you're a smart guy. You've been on the inside of the league and you kind of understand how things really work. Do what, what uh, do the Wayne Gretzky skate to where the puck is going because this ship's already sailed in, in baseball. It's on its way in basketball and that's where things are going in football. Um, and I really, I kind of always say I drank all of the Kool-Aid that, that Vince was serving um, <laughs> and kind of studied under him at that program. And that was what led me to Sports Info Solutions. At the time, they were Baseball Info Solutions. Vince had, of course, had a relationship with, with that company for years through John Dewan, Ben Jedlovec, Bill James, uh, some of the people that, that were instrumental uh, in kind of building the company. And they had gotten into mm-hmm. football. And sure enough, they had realized that as an analytics company, they were so great at data collection, um, data auditing, cleaning, um, being able to serve it to the teams in a way that's useful and presents relevant insight they had so much expertise in all of this, but they didn't know enough about football. Um, so it was a real perfect mm-hmm. meeting for somebody like me to come in and kind of come in as, as a little bit of a translator between what they were real experts in and the, the differences that, there, that, that obviously exist between analyzing a sport like baseball and helping baseball teams and being able to do that for football. So um, it was just a, a, a kind of lucky coincidence for me as far as how I fell into it. Um, and uh, I, people always say you never know what, what your career path's going to take. Uh, I definitely couldn't have predicted mine. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to get more into what you do now at Sports Info Solutions. But before that, you know, most of the people I have on this show obviously have an analytics background. And so we talk about a lot about what an analytics person does day to day. But given that you have a background in, in scouting as well, could you talk through a little bit? of what your day-to-day tasks and maybe, you know, over the course of the season, how that might change your day-to-day tasks as a scout, um, both with the saints and the Browns and, and what that really looks like on the ground. Yeah, no, absolutely. So in my time in new Orleans, I was a scouting assistant. So I was purely living, uh, in house, uh, you know, so to speak, I was, I was in the office and I split my time during the season. I was mostly on the pro side of things. And during the off season, I was mostly in the college side of things. So my Mm -hmm. sorts of responsibilities during the week are all the sort of tasks that get kind of pushed down, um, you know, the the direction that things flow. Um, And I was ended up picking up doing things like uh, the scouting department is responsible for your advanced scouting report. So you're working on the team, not that you're playing next, but the team that you're playing after you play the next team. So that on Sunday Mm -hmm. night when you're on the plane ride home and the coaching staff wants uh, their first report on their next opponent – You've got all that stuff ready, and then you're on to the next guys already. So for me, mm-hmm. as the as the low man on the totem pole, oftentimes I was helping with the special teams advances. So um, that's anything that our special teams coordinator and assistant special teams coach were looking at that they thought was relevant in terms of information that they needed for uh, the upcoming opponent. Um, it's a lot of film analysis. It's a lot of uh, compiling different statistics and different reports that, that are sometimes useful, sometimes in my opinion, they, they were maybe not so useful, but, yeah. um, you know, you kind of do what you're told. Um, lots of different things, like always making sure our ready list is ready that you always have a list of players where if you have an injury, who are you going to call from the veteran list? And then who are you going to call that has practice squad eligibility? So constantly staying on top of that, keeping that updated on a day-to-day basis, uh, making sure things at practice are running smoothly in case, uh, you know, usually I didn't have a specific role that I was needed for every day in practice, but that ended up being sort of uh, something where there would be random tasks that would need to get done or you need somebody to fill in here 
um, hold the first down chains, whatever it might be. Um, Mm -hmm. You'd be around practice every day. And then on Sundays on the game days, I would travel with the team. And if you remember, now they have the tablets. They used to have the books with all the pictures that you'd be printing out of what they looked like (laughs) at the snap. That was my job, making sure those books got together. If, God forbid, the the printer broke, then Sean Payton was going (laughs) to chew me out as if, you know, like I I sabotaged the printer somehow. Um, So and, you know, sometimes it could just be uh, we threw an interception and so it was going to get taken out on the books. Um, So that's my day to day in the season, in the offseason, everything draft related. So I did minimal stuff for the draft during the season at that time, aside for from like sending. We used to send at that time. It was hard drives. We had gotten past DVDs. But I was still sending external hard drives in the mail to scouts so that they could get film. Um, <laughs> now everything's cloud-based, of course, but um, yeah. a little bit of a different era. But then finally in the offseason, we had to prepare for the Senior Bowl, all the different all-star games, uh, the Combine, which your whole coaching staff is going to travel to when you have to have the whole agenda laid out for them. Everybody gets their own book with all the information on all the different prospects so that they can take their notes and, and have all the relevant information in front of them. So uh, just a lot of logistical stuff all the way up until you build the draft room. That was part of my responsibilities was actually setting up the draft room and coordinating the draft. So all the magnets on the walls, all the digital versions of those same things, which, uh, you know, you have kind of both the analog and the digital operating because uh, certain people see the benefit of the digital and other people feel more comfortable with with the old school way of doing things. So uh, making sure that's all set up and everybody's comfortable. Um, and then just seeing through that uh, draft, they actually proceed. So I would actually be moving the magnets and, and moving uh, mm-hmm. different people in, in spreadsheets and things like that during the draft day. So um, it's uh, it was a mix of, of college and pro. And then in, in Cleveland, my job was totally different. My job was purely as an mm-hmm. area scout. I was on the road. You're on the road basically 10 days out of every 14 days from August through the end of November, those four months, you're just constantly on the road, going to different schools, talking to coaches. Um, the most irreplaceable part, I think, of a, of a scout's job is the, the character stuff and the information mm-hmm. that you're kind of, you're almost like a private investigator on campus trying to understand who these kids are and how they work and different things like that. Because uh, everybody can watch the film, um, which is ultimately yeah. at the end of the day, the, the you know, the, the core. But this is the, the special information that I think area scouts are really responsible for. Um, and then uh, that becomes uh, sort of the pre-draft season goes from December. You're having a lot of meetings. You're doing a lot of cross checks. So as opposed to being responsible for the whole Northeast from Virginia to Pittsburgh to Maine, I would become responsible for all of the defensive linemen um, and just making sure that we're calibrated from different regions across different positions well. Um, adding in that cross-check layer. Um, and then um, you're going to the All-Star Games in January. You're going to the Combine in a normal year uh, at the end of February. More meetings throughout February. Then you have the Pro Day circuit, finally draft day. And then you get a chance to kind of take a breath and reload. You'll have some summer scouting that you need to do to stay on top of things. Uh, make sure that you have an understanding of everybody that's that's rising up into that year's class. But for the most part, from the time after the draft until you get to August, that's kind of the, the most relaxed time of year for a scout, for sure. Uh, and then you do it all again. Um, so it ends up being about half the year you're on the road between the season, pro days and meetings. And the other half, mm-hmm. uh, you know, you'd be living not in Cleveland. Uh, I was living in New York at the time uh, where I'm from. So um, you, you are a little bit more disconnected from the team in that sense as, a, as an area scout. 
relative mm-hmm. to being somebody in the office every day. Got it. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly an important perspective to have, I think, on, on this show, given that we, we really haven't had all that people that, that you know, have the scouting background and, and know what, have that experience of what it's like to go to a school and, and get those character assessments. So really interesting. Um, so now moving to your current, your current spot, um, what does, generally speaking, Sports Info Solutions do? What are some of the main products? Yeah. So generally, um, we are a data gathering and a data analysis company. So um, the primary things that we do in, in football, baseball, and basketball now, we've also recently expanded out into basketball, is we use video scouts um, to chart different data points that wouldn't be easily gathered through just traditional statistics or these days even through a lot of um, coordinate data, which is oftentimes mm-hmm. available, especially at the professional level, um, it becomes more limited with its availability as you get to lower levels, but also even with coordinate data, there are different things that, um, the, the coordinates haven't gotten good enough at, at picking up on quite yet. Yeah. So we're, we're constantly trying to, uh, push the needle as far as that goes and making sure that we're, we're capturing everything that's, that's really important to what actually wins and loses in these sports. So oftentimes we went from being the only data set, like back in the day with, uh, where we were in baseball to now we're off in a complementary data set that um, pairs really well with a lot of these sort of coordinate datas. And we very much uh, kind of engineer things in that direction. Um, so that data collection relies on our operations department, which is sports experts, people that um, have backgrounds in scouting and coaching and that sort of a thing um, that, that really have that sports expertise. We use the data that they collect. Well, um, we go through many, many auditing layers to make sure it's as pristine and useful as possible. And then we provide that data to teams, and that really takes two forms, whether that's uh, the raw data, which as teams get more and more advanced and they have larger and larger analytics groups, they constantly just want that. They want to ingest it into their own systems and be able to to rock from there, which uh, we're we're big fans of. But also um, for different sorts of needs, we're creating different sorts of applications and products whether it be something like in baseball, defensive run saved, defensive run saved is a stat that we invented many years ago. Uh, in football, our flagship stat is known as total points, which is um, you know we don't recommend holy grail stats, but it does as close as as we have to something that that kind of answers the question about player value across positions in football. Um, and so we provide not just the data to the teams, but also some of these analytical tools, whether that be in the form of different statistics and analysis, or whether that's in the form of uh, an application where they can go in and interact with the data, uh, pair it with the video, uh, and be able to find their own insights um, from from working with it. So that's that's the hist- That's that's most of what we do is is on the team side. That's our team business. Um, but we also work with media. Um, for example, we uh, provide um, baseball data to sites like Fangraphs. Um, we work in college football as the official data provider for ESPN. Um, so anytime you're seeing any sort of advanced college football data on ESPN, that's our stuff. So um, we work with media. And as you can imagine, with with sports betting becoming a more and more popular, that's become something that we, we've started working with a lot of companies that are interested in, in creating different sorts of products in that space. So we're really, um, we're opening, we're, we're broadening our horizons. Historically, we've just been kind of, 
hey, we want to get the best data so that we can help teams win more games and then we'll sell it to the teams. Um, and recently it's become, there's an appetite for this beyond just the teams where people want to use it, uh, whether it's to make really compelling analysis and, and you know, an article that they're writing online, or it's to make some money and try to, you know, beat the sharks or whatever it may be. So um, we're, we've been expanding in a lot of different directions lately. Mm-hmm. And what is your role um, specifically right now? Yeah. So when I came in, I was purely just in charge of football. Uh, it had been a, mm-hmm. a baseball company and they kind of, you know, we split things up into there's a, a business development division. I mentioned the operations before the people actually gathering the data. We have our IT department um, who's really responsible for all of our infrastructure and data delivery. And then our R&D folks who, who are really data analysts. Um, at the end of the day. And basically when I came in, all of these had been really well established in baseball. And my job was to work with them to make them into two sport departments, each, each of those. So I spent the first part of my time with Sports Info Solutions really building up the operation. What data are we going to collect? What's meaningful football data in the first place? Uh, because at the time, it was, it was really a, a blank slate in a lot of ways. So mm-hmm. we worked to build that up first things first. And then from there, I've done more and more work um, with the R&D side of things. And now my role is both in the football department and in the R&D department, where I oversee that group of analysts that that are doing work in multiple sports, um, not because um, they care about, you know, my feelings on XG boost models or anything like that, but because uh, we find that it's really important to make sure that we keep all of our analysts really grounded in what's going on on the field and what's really useful and makes sense um, if you're going to present it to the GM of a team, for example. So mm-hmm. I get the pleasure of working with all of our analysts uh, on mostly on both football and baseball in terms of being able to um, guide a lot of the direction and uh, the strategic priorities and the sanity checks on, on what mm-hmm. we're trying to do as we build out these different products. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think that makes a, a lot of sense. I've always been a big proponent of, particularly for people who come from the more analytics background and don't have a coaching background or a scouting background to make sure they're, you know, even if it's just as much as reading a book to get started and understand the types of things that scouts and coaches are thinking about, I think is, is really important. And I think that role makes, makes a lot of sense and and probably something we need to see more of. Um, I want to switch gears to the uh, sport info solutions rookie handbook uh, with the draft coming up soon. Um, First of all, what is the handbook and where can people find it? So the SIS football rookie handbook, this is our third, third year of producing it. Um, it is available through our, our publisher, Acta Sports at actaactasports.com. Um, it's also available on Amazon. There's a Kindle edition that's available. Um, and what the handbook is, is kind of like a, a pre-draft guide, but it's really built to be a, a comprehensive both scouting and analytics perspective on each of the top 300 players in the draft. So we collect all of our data on the NFL level and on the college football level. We cover 130 teams in the FBS, and a lot of what we do uh, on the team front is not just uh, providing uh, information on their upcoming opponents, but also on players that they might be interested in drafting or acquiring at, at a later date. And the football rookie handbook for each of these players, you get an NFL style scouting report based on what I did with what I've learned from my time with 
the Saints and the Browns and updated to mm-hmm. reflect all of what we do at Sports Info Solutions. Uh, we're constantly iterating things, um, you know, sort of the quantitative leads to the qualitative and the qualitative leads back to the quantitative in the way that yeah. we, you know, we built our data collection process, but then we can learn from what we've collected, from analyzing that data, what's actually relevant and what's less relevant than we thought it was. And then we can recalibrate kind of our grading scales going forward. So you get the scouting reports and then you get a deep, detailed analytical breakdown on all the on all the different players. Um, and that's everything from the basic statistics to advanced statistics to kind of usage statistics. So you can find out um, how often a, a different corner was playing press or man versus zone um, and that sort of a thing. Um, and then uh, I mentioned our Holy Grail stats before. We, uh, you know, we can get into that a, a little bit more if you want to. Um, but we try to just present uh, kind of all the different relevant numbers for each position so that you we kind of make the reader the GM. Uh, we're not trying to answer mm-hmm. the question of how you want to blend the, the scouting and the analytics, um, at least not in this in this publication. But as the GM, the way a lot of NFL teams are thinking about things right now, you're often getting two separate opinions presented to you. And that's what we try mm-hmm. to present to you within this book. Sometimes they'll match. Sometimes they won't. And uh, I always feel like when they match, I feel really good about the information. When they don't, uh, it's it's usually a good reason to do some more digging. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it reminds me of when I worked in in soccer analytics. I was I was basically the the analytics side, and there was obviously a scouting side. And you know, with every player we would look at, we would have you know representation from each side, and it was sort of this, you know, either they agree or they don't agree, and and let's figure out why. So certainly very familiar with that that process of reconciling the the differing views um i want to dive into some of the actual stats you look at um for a few positions i guess we'll start with uh the quarterback for a quarterback within the book and then you know more generally in your experience what advanced metrics are you most focused on or do you like to highlight yeah so i had i would start off with total points um and then it's sort of a rate stat corollary total points rating um, and what that is just on a, on a basic level, if you're familiar with the concept of expected points added EPA and football, that's basically mm-hmm. taking yards, touchdowns and turnovers, which previously is what we had to quantify plays, um, and turning that into what was the impact on scoring based on that play. So one example would be if I have first and 10 on my own 20 and I get a 30 yard gain and it becomes first and 10 on the 50. I can say that I gained about two expected points because I went from having about one expected point, right? The average next score when I have the ball first and 10 on my 20 is about plus one points for my team to a plus mm-hmm. three point situation when I have the ball on the 50. So you could say that play was worth two points. So we take that currency of expected points added, and now we're using the intricate charting data that we're collecting to divide that amongst the 22 players on the field. So in, in the case of that 30-yard gain being Patrick Mahomes drop back to pass, is immediately pressured by three guys within one second, rolls out to the sideline, throwing at full speed on the run, hits Tyreek Hill uh, between the numbers, and Tyreek Hill falls down immediately. That play is going to be evaluated one way, whereas the, the other version of that play where it's a one-step drop and he throws a bubble screen to Tyreek Hill, and then Tyreek Hill breaks two tackles and runs for 30 yards to get to the 50 that's going to have a totally different breakdown in the way the total points are distributed on that play. And, it, mm-hmm. you know, it's driven by the basic, um, by basically the, the expectations and the change in expectations of each of the sort of events that can happen from one sort of part of the play to another. 
um, and, and kind of the average expectation of what you would have in given any of those situations. And um, what you get at the end of the day is something that's, that's far from perfect. Football is a very complicated sport, but we do get something that's more satisfying than, than EPA because um, EPA at the end of the day is a team stat. It's, it's quantifying what the 11 people on your team did against the 11 on the other team. Uh, people that like to use that to, to describe quarterback performance, for example, uh, need to be careful because um, those two plays that I talked about in the context of EPA are identical when, when they obviously aren't. Um, so mm-hmm. that's kind of total points in a nutshell. Uh, total points rating uh, is a rate stat version of that where we basically put it onto the Madden scale uh, where a 50 would be the worst rating you could have, a 99 would be the best rating that you have, um, and uh, your total points rating per play is scaled um, within whatever sort of action type you're doing as a pass blocker, as a pass defender, as a rusher, anything like that. Um, mm-hmm. So those are the first things for for a quarterback and really for any position. We start there with total points. We spend a lot of time trying to make sure that those those metrics are a, as well calibrated as they possibly can be. Um, but then with quarterbacks, you look at accuracy. You know, from a scouting perspective, accuracy is a cl- critical factor, and accuracy is obviously so much more than just completion percentage. Um, so one of the things that I look at is sort of our version of completion percentage over expectation. It's what we call PCOMP. And whereas, uh, you know, NextGen has their CPOE model that basically is looking at what was your expected completion percentage on the throw, and then did you perform above or below that? Um, we mm-hmm. do that with uh, what we call PCOMP, which takes into account what was your offensive formation, what was your route distribution, what was the defensive cover scheme, and was there pressure on the quarterback? When you look at it on the NFL level, it actually has about 0.9 correlation with uh, what the dots tell you. Um, But what's nice about this is we can apply this to college football. And oftentimes when I'm looking at those quarterbacks, um, that's a statistic that I really care about. We actually took that a step farther this year, and we have something that's um, expected on target percentage. And that's basically the same concept as any of these statistics, except it's stripping out whether or not the throw was completed as being um, the predictor, but actually whether or not the throw was on target. And uh, we're grading throws in a lot of different ways. On target would be a throw that hits the receiver in stride or, or kind of inside the numbers. Mm-hmm. Which position do you do you find analytics is the least useful for? Yeah, um, I think there are a couple ways to look at that question. Um, in terms of moving the needle from what we already knew um, mm-hmm. about about prospects, I would probably say running back. Um, I think we already kind of a lot of things about running backs were very self-evident. They kind of already had an outsized amount of attention from the stat sheet to begin with. Um, yeah. So I don't think that that the, the needles really moved a lot. But um, at the end of the day, we know a lot more about running backs than we know about other pr- positions in terms of sort of uh, predictiveness and uh, stability. Past defense uh, statistics are very, very frustrating. So understanding yeah. corners, safeties, coverage, linebackers. Um, the value of that along with, along with, um, man, it's really, it's really hard to find something that, that doesn't jump all over the place from year to year, um, when you talk about that. So, um, I think there's, there's a use there and I think there's still work to be done to continue to uncover that. But, um, that is, that is a frustrating one that, that, um, it's been hard to find a lot that, that you can really hang your hat on. And conversely, which position do you think analytics adds the most value beyond you know, what traditional scouting might find? So for all positions, we've learned 
to focus more of our evaluations on how players affect the pass game than the run game. I'd say that's the first mm-hmm. thing. So whatever position we're looking at, defensive tackles, for example, how does that defensive tackle affect the pass game is more important than how he affects the run game. So at every position, I think there's been that turn of the dial. Um, and it's very difficult to, to argue with that when you look at what wins and loses football games. Um, along with that, I would say if I had to pick a position, I would say the upfront guys, whether it's offensive linemen, interior defensive linemen, that sort of stuff, because um, just like with running backs, the, the knowledge gained from having more statistics wasn't great because we already kind of had what was relevant for them. The knowledge gained with offensive linemen is huge because we had so little to begin with. Um, mm-hmm. If you're going off of like sports re- reference uh, average value, um, which is a nice attempt based on what was available, um, I think when you actually start to look and what's under the you know what's underlying that, it's very disappointing in terms of what you can what you can use for offensive linemen. The stats just weren't there. So understanding that stuff, understanding those interactions, along with the value of those interactions, especially on the pass game, right? Like I think there's an old school mindset that said offensive line matters for the running game more than the passing game. That's kind of flipped on its head right now. And the ability to understand how those guys impact the other players, like I was talking about with total points before, I think allows us to better calibrate all positions. Um, Mm -hmm. So uh, sort of a complicated answer. If if you held me to one position, I'd say offensive line. But I think it kind of has tentacles that everything's so interrelated (laughs) that it's hard to boil it down. Yeah. Interesting. Um, I want to focus a little bit on on the draft here because that is what is right around the corner. Um, First of all, taking sort of a 10,000 foot view, what are some of the biggest mistakes in your opinion you see teams making in the draft? The the number one hasn't changed. It's that everybody thinks they know more than they do. Um, (laughs) Everybody is too too certain about how players are going to turn out. And if they could convince themselves to be less certain about things and, and understand and quantify, like really, really force themselves to quantify uncertainty and build that into how they're making their decisions. Um, I think that's, that's the number one biggest thing. And, and right along with that, I would say that just bias in general is rampant. There's it's, mm-hmm. it's just out of control because with the right decision maker or maybe the wrong decision maker in, in the wrong situation, it's really unchecked the amount of bias that you can have. Um, because a lot of these decision makers just don't um, trust these sort of process related things that um, mm-hmm. I think you and I would be more supportive of. So um, everybody, you know, all of the different biases that exist, I think those are those are the biggest mistakes. Um, and the teams that draft well, in my opinion, when I've been on the inside, it's when you have independently formed consensus on the vision of the player. So there's a few a few things going on there. It's got to be independently formed. It can't just be groupthink consensus. Um, That's as poisonous as anything. But if the scouting department and the coaches have a similar vision for the player and how they're and the analytics backs it up and the training staff is on board and everybody's got the same vision for how that player is going to succeed on the team. Best example when I was in New Orleans was Jimmy Graham. I don't think Jimmy Graham would have been successful on every NFL team, but Everybody saw the same vision of the player from the scouts to Sean Payton and throughout. And based on having a clear vision and having consensus on what that vision was, there was a path for him to be able to develop into a successful pick. So Mm -hmm. um, I think everybody kind of knows about the bias stuff from the inside. That's the thing that um, when we made mistakes, it was because we were not unified in what what our vision for the player was. Mm hmm. This year, there have been, uh, it seems like, a, a few high-profile trades in the last week or two um, with some of the top picks 
do you have any thoughts on those? What are your initial reactions to those those trades? Yeah, I mean, just uh, related to that last question, I would say good for the teams that move down. Uh, the Dolphins moved from number three to number six, probably have the same sorts of players that they would have been available uh, to them at number three, available at number six, because they're not in the quarterback market. Um, and the sorts of, you know, there's probably, you know, in this year's draft, there are five quarterbacks that everybody talks about. And then there are really four receivers. If you include Kyle Pitts as a receiver, Kyle Pitts is a tight end, but he's, you know, like Travis Kelsey going to impact the passing game, uh, an outsized impact. So you can think of Jamar Chase, uh, Jalen Waddle, Devontae Smith, along with um, Kyle Pitts as players that the Dolphins seem like they would be awfully interested in. Um, and because there are four of those guys that kind of all are in that same elite tier, you can see why the Dolphins were just fine picking up a future first round pick moving down three spots. So I love it for them. Mm-hmm. I love it for the Niners. Also, they move from number six to number 12. They also pick up a future first round pick. Um, I think that anytime you can do that, I think that's a great move. Yeah. They run a little bit of a risk of, uh, excuse me, the Eagles moving down in exchange with the Niners moving up in this whole three team deal or I guess it was two separate deals. Uh, Eagles moving down makes total sense for where they are in their sort of development cycle as a franchise, picking up a first-round pick. It's just everybody uh, knows two things they know too much. Now, with the Niners, at first I like the pick because the Niners have a really good team, and they're clearly frustrated with their quarterback situation. Uh, I, at first, thought they were moving up because Justin Fields was going to be available at that number three pick, it looks like Trevor Lawrence and Kyle Wilson are going to be the, the first two quarterbacks off the board. So with fields available at number three, I wrote in my fields evaluation that I thought he was a fit in a Shanahan style offense. I think he's a, when we talk about team fit and players, you know, the skill set fitting with what the team wants to do, I couldn't mm-hmm. imagine a better fit than that. So I was actually excited about that too, even though they gave away two first round picks, but it sounds like they're moving up and they're going to select Alabama's Mac Jones with that pick. That's kind of everything you hear out of the media. So if we believe what we hear as far as that goes, it doesn't make any sense to me at all because I think Mac Jones might have been available at number 12 um, or number six or, or somewhere along the way where uh, I don't know if they had to move up to that number three spot to get him. Um, so people don't like to question Kyle Shanahan because he knows what he's doing when it comes to quarterbacks, but it might be an example of uh, over – um, overestimating your ability to um, know things about these players that, that other teams don't. Mm-hmm. Are there any particular players in this draft that you think are likely to be significantly undervalued or overvalued by a team? Yeah. Um, Justin Fields, who I just mentioned at quarterback for him to not be going in the top two, top three is very surprising to me. I think if Trevor Lawrence wasn't coming out this year, He's about as good of a prospect as we've evaluated at the quarterback position in the last three years. Um, Mm -hmm. He's got every trait that you look for at the position when you kind of look at it from an old school scouting lens. When you look at some of the statistics on him, his total points rating is through the roof. Um, And he's really a a big part of the reason why his team was winning games at Ohio State in an offense that was built around him. And he was an elite athlete amongst elite athletes. So the -hmm. fact that, you know, if that he if he ends up dropping, as some people are speculating, I think a team could hit the jackpot there going a little bit more under the radar. I look at the weak side linebacker position. Uh, Weak side linebackers are kind of a a maligned position group in in football analytics to begin with. Um, The, the sort of early football analytics uh, feedback was not to value off ball linebackers, but there's kind of been a little bit of a swing back as linebackers value and coverage 
is becoming more and more valued as we see tight ends and running backs really uh, infiltrate the, the middle of the field in the passing game. And mm-hmm. two players that I look at at that position, one overvalued, one undervalued. Dylan Moses coming out of Alabama was a guy who was a hot prospect, had an ACL injury two years ago, came back and played, didn't look like his full self this past year, uh, got criticized by Nick Saban a little bit, which I think fed into some of the, the narrative. And, you know, I talked about bias a little a, a minute before um, the amount that people will will cling to words that come out of somebody like that, uh, their mouth. Um, I think that he's being a little bit unfairly uh push down draft boards. I, I don't think he's going to go until day two or maybe even later, uh, if that's even possible. Um, and I, I think he's probably got the looks of a day one player as far as anything that I, w- I would, you know, medical checks uh, need to be done. But generally we see players coming back from simple ACL tears um, mm-hmm. that uh, it doesn't make sense to me that, that he's just been so, so pushed down and forgotten about. Um, and then the guy that I think is a little bit overvalued at that position Boomer bust for sure. Uh, Micah Parsons out of Penn State. Uh, you hear a lot of buzz about him going in the early teens in this year's draft. One of the top defensive players that's probably going to come off the board. And I think we got to be careful with a player like that because he absolutely is shot out of a cannon. He's got incredible play speed and you love that. But he's a guy who hasn't demonstrated the ability to be really sound in coverage, either in man or zone. Um, it's, a, it's a skill that he could get better at. He's a young player and he's a great athlete. So, like I said, there's some boom potential there. But I think at the end of the day, when you look at this player, he's a little bit more – I think if it goes well for him, he'll be a little bit more like Devin White in Tampa Bay. They're a linebacker who they tend to use as a blitzer on third downs. They tend to like to make him attack the passer uh, and really become an extra pass rusher for them as opposed to somebody that they really trust dropping into the passing game like they do with their other linebacker, Levante David. And I just think we need to be careful about the value of that because if you want to have somebody rush the passer, you can get a pass rusher. And, yeah, you can make the argument that Parsons is as good a pass rusher as any of the the edge prospects in this year's draft. I think that he's uh, probably not at the top of my list, but he he's right there with some of the other guys. But he's undersized. There's a reason why he's not drafted as an edge linebacker. So it's, it's uh, you know, we got over tweeners because tweeners ended up starting to become really valuable. But now he's almost a new sort of tweener where is he actually an off-ball linebacker? Is he going to learn those coverage skills? If so, I love him. But if not, I, I, I want to be a little bit more careful that the team's going to have a really good vision for him. Because if the vision's good and the vision is Devin White, then I love it. If the vision is cloudy and it's Hassan Reddick, then um, I could see I could see a way that it that it doesn't go as well as as some people think it will. Mm-hmm. Well, to finish up here, I want your opinion on you know, resources for people that maybe have a background in analytics, but want to and are trying to learn more about the types of things that scouts and coaches are thinking about. So are there any books or you know, websites, blogs, et cetera, that you would recommend for someone with an analytics background looking to to cross over and learn a little bit more about how a coach or scouts use the game? That's a really interesting question. I think there are a lot of uh, resources out there now where people are kind of uh, film analysis, uh, football people um, that you'll see on Twitter and places like that. And, and there can be some really interesting stuff there. Um, in terms of resources, the things that come to mind, um, Steve Belichick, Bill Belichick's father wrote a book called Football Scouting Methods, which might be a little mm-hmm. bit dense unless you're a really real uh, football enthusiast. But if you're really yeah. trying to really understand the, um, the underpinnings of football theory, 
in a way that translates really well to analytical thinking. I think this book, I, you know, I loved it uh, when I first read it because I was like, oh, wow, this guy was thinking about things in a way that makes so much sense when we see the success that his son had. Um, but then looking back on it, I, I'm constantly referencing it because I'll have a problem that comes up um, in terms of a coding challenge, you know, with, when I'm, with my analysts where we're looking at things and we're saying, uh, okay, how is the defense thinking about this? We can go back and look in the book and understand when he's looking, okay, we're looking about at, at the count of the players between the guards, and then we're reading from the guards through the guards to the running back in this situation. And we can say, oh, okay, we, we, under, we don't need to calculate this algorithm. This algorithm's right here. It was, it was Steve Belichick's thought process. Um, <laughs> so uh, those are really good um, resources. Um, the Football Rookie Handbook is a great one. Because it really ties it all in together. It explains a lot mm -hmm. of the football theory, the scouting theory. Um, you know, the Saints do things old school scouting wise. They do things round based grading. The Browns do, when I was there with Lombardi, he had worked with Belichick for years. They do what we call role based grading. And, and the Football Rookie Handbook is more based in the role based grading that you see more than half of the NFL has really adopted at this point. Um, and the Football Rookie Handbook can be a good sort of introduction to the way that scouts are looking at things, along with the way that that translates to some of the interesting metrics that we have. Um, so those are a couple things that come to mind. We have some really good stuff on sportsinfosolutionsblog.com. Um, and then, you know, some of our partners, people like Football Outsiders, Sharp Football Analysis, um, Fan Graphs. I think all of these places that um, are different, different uh, websites that we work with that do a great job of looking at things, not just through um, the lens of, of, you know, a computer that, that doesn't have an understanding of what's actually going on on the field. I think all of those websites do a great job of kind of integrating the, the, the football or the baseball with the analysis. Mm -hmm. Well, those are all, um, awesome recommendations. And I, I really appreciate you coming on, Matt. I think this is a perspective that we need and is, is important for, uh, people in analytics to have and understand, you know, what the scouts vision is particularly from someone like you that has really experience across both the qualitative and quantitative. So thank you so much for, for coming on and looking forward to watching the draft through the lens of everything you've just talked about. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for having me on.